This is Come Follow Me with David Ridges, produced by Cedar Fort Publishing and Media, for the week of June 8th through the 14th, covering Alma chapters 8 through 12. Today's special guest teacher is Marilyn Faulkner, author of the user-friendly Book of Mormon. Hi, Marilyn Faulkner here, author of the user-friendly Book of Mormon, Timeless Truths for Today's Challenges. I like to look at the scriptures in the light of the things I am facing today. And we certainly are in the midst of a challenging time. Well, we can go to the chapters in Alma, chapters 8 through 12, where Alma faces a very challenging time. He's had kind of a boom time. He has resigned as the political leader, and as the head of the church, he has gone around and begun to bear down in pure testimony doing missionary work, and he's had some great success. But as he comes into the city of Ammonihah, he's greeted by a group of people who are very much like many of the people who surround us today. And he actually is rejected so completely that he begins to feel in some physical danger, and he leaves the city in great discouragement. Join me in chapter 8, verse 14, as Alma is walking along and has this remarkable experience. And it came to pass that while he was journeying thither, being weighed down with sorrow, wading through much tribulation and anguish of soul, because of the wickedness of the people who were in the city of Ammonihah, it came to pass while Alma was thus weighed down with sorrow, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him, saying, Blessed art thou, Alma, therefore lift up thy head and rejoice. For thou hast had great for thou hast great cause to rejoice, for thou hast been faithful in keeping the commandments of God from the time which thou receivest thy first message from him. And then he says this remarkable thing Behold, I am he that delivered it unto you. That beautiful little sentence teaches me so much about the order of heaven. Do we have a guardian angel? Do we have angels that are assigned to look over us? Well, if we don't, then why is the same angel visiting Alma twice? I love this sweet detail that gives us the feeling that not only was Alma visited in great power by the angel the first time he came in response to the faithful prayers of Alma Sr. and his compatriots, but at the same time, we have this sweet and tender message that perhaps these angels are attending our steps in between. All of you remember, I'm sure, the wonderful talk given by Wendy Watson Nelson, where she talks about the experience she had listening to Elder Holland's great discourse on angels in general conference. Sister Nelson describes the moment when Elder Holland says, You may ask angels to be dispatched to help you, even people from your family, even relatives. They are there waiting to help you if you will only ask. And to paraphrase her, she said, I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. I could have been asking for that kind of help all this time. Why wasn't I? Well, I think it had the same effect on many of us that we went back to the scriptures and began to see how involved angels are in the spreading of the gospel, and in the perfection of the saints. In fact, at the very end of the Book of Mormon, 
where we get some of these great summing up doctrines that explain to us what all of this is about. Mormon, talking about faith and how faith comes to be, says in Moroni 7, verse 22, For behold, God, knowing all things, being from everlasting to everlasting, behold, he sent angels to minister unto the children of men, to make manifest concerning the coming of Christ. And in Christ there should come every good thing. And then he goes on to say that he also speaks to prophets and he gives us the scriptures and other things. But then in verse 25, he says again, Wherefore, by the ministering of angels and by every word which proceedeth forth out of the mouth of God, men became, began to exercise faith in Christ. And thus by faith, they did lay hold upon every good thing. And thus it was until the coming of Christ. And it was by the visitation of the angel who came and changed Alma the Younger's life, that Alma began to have the insight which causes him to say, and I'm, gonna, I'm flipping back and forth a little, so stay with me. In Alma chapter 7, he says, Alma says, For behold, I say unto you, there be many things to come, and behold, there is one thing which is of more importance than they all. For behold, the time is not far distant that the Redeemer liveth, and cometh among his people. This idea that the coming of Christ and the impact of Christ and the saving grace of Christ, that the power of Christ is the most important thing, not only in the gospel but in the world and in the history of the world, is central to the Book of Mormon. Now when the angel comes to visit Alma, he is reminded again that even though these people are very unrighteous and have caused him great sorrow because he loves them, that he has reason to rejoice. Again in verse 15, Blessed art thou, Alma, lift up thy head and rejoice, for thou hast great cause to rejoice, for thou hast been faithful in keeping the commandments of God. Now, if we keep the commandments of God, why should we be able to rejoice even when there is sorrow all around us? It's not because we are righteous and they are not. That's not it at all. It's because we have a hope in Christ. And that hope in Christ is central to being able to go through life with a feeling of joy. The poet William Blake, who was a devout Christian, tried to explain this by comparing joy and sorrow to two separate threads that go through the fabric of our lives. He said, Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silk and twine. And it is right it should be so. We were made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. It is possible to be in the midst of great sorrow and suffering and continue to have the joy of the gospel in our hearts. We see Jesus himself setting this example as he kneels among the Nephites after all of the sorrow and tribulation that he had waded through and that he had seen his people wade through. And yet as they turned their hearts toward him and lifted up their hearts in prayer with him, he weeps and says, my joy is full. As you look at your life and as you express your testimony to your children and your grandchildren, I think it's very important that we teach them 
that life will be full of sorrow, but it can also be full of joy simultaneously if, in fact, we have Christ at the center of our faith. Well, with this in mind, Alma is rejuvenated and turns around and goes back to the city of Ammonihah, where he meets a man named Amulek. And this is where the next thing that I noticed came in uh, during this quarantine. Uh, One of my little projects has been trying to learn to bake a really good loaf of bread that's like restaurant bread. I miss restaurant bread. You know, the crusty outside and soft in the middle. It's a little different than those nice home-baked loaves we make. And I found a recipe that is the most popular recipe that the New York Times cooking section ever printed of a loaf of bread that takes four ingredients, only four, and three of them, flour, water, and salt, are very obvious. And of course, well, you say there's got to be some yeast in it, but this is the thing that surprised me. The amount of yeast in this recipe is only one quarter of a teaspoon. Now, if you've ever baked a loaf of bread, I would imagine you have not baked a loaf of bread with only one quarter of a teaspoon of yeast. There's a secret to why this bread works and why it's the best bread I've ever baked. And at the end of this lesson, we'll go back to it. The bread reminded me, or I was reminded of bread because A, I'm usually hungry, and B, because when I'm reading, Alma has fasted many days, and he goes back to the city, and he's sad, and he meets Amulek, and the first thing Amulek does is take him home and feed him. And it says he set bread and meat before him. And then later he said, Alma ate bread and was filled. Now, whenever I see the word bread in the scriptures, my little symbol light goes off. You know, bread is one of the great iconic symbols in the scriptures. I like to look at the scriptures as little parables for living. And I like it that it was important, first of all, to sit down and feed Alma. Brigham Young said, you know, you can't teach people the gospel when their bellies are empty. And it's true that our physical needs are very important to us. And certainly this pandemic and this quarantine has focused us on the vulnerability of our physical bodies and how important it is to try to protect ourselves if we can from things that actually can be avoided. Now, Alma, as he has this experience finds that he, it takes him many days in the home of Amulek to get his strength back and be able to go and preach the gospel. So go with me into chapter 8, where we have now had this experience. Our two new missionary companions have met. We've had some time to strengthen Alma, and then they go forward and begin to preach the gospel. Let me just make a little parenthetical statement here that we'll hear four voices in these chapters. We can always get a couple of voices in the Book of Mormon, but there are four distinct voices in these chapters. Can you think of what those four voices are? We have Alma quoted directly. We have Amulek quoted directly from the ancient records. We have Mormon as the great redactor, which is that he's not only writing down what he sees in the plates, but he's also paraphrasing, narrating. He's telling the story sometimes instead of just quoting the original record. And finally, who is the fourth voice? It's our wonderful angel, who has now come twice in the book of Alma to visit this remarkable man. And one of my questions on my gospel list is, who is this person? Who is the angel that comes to visit Alma? I'm not going to get to find out in this life, but I'm putting it on my question list when I get to the next one. Alma then has the opportunity to recount his deliverance, not only to Amulek, but then onto the people in the city of Ammonihah. 
And Amulek then gets an opportunity also to preach the gospel. And he gives a very honest and straightforward testimony of his experiences. And he talks to the people about why he is kind of a successful businessman, a man of some renown, a man of some reputation, had kind of put the gospel on the back burner. And he might be compared to trying to bake a loaf of bread with flour, water, and salt. But he was missing the power. He was missing the great leavening agent. He was missing what makes those ingredients into bread. I am the bread of life, Jesus says, and life is the operative word. It is life that's in Christ. Life that is in the gospel comes from the power of Christ. And I guarantee you that if you ever find yourself just talking about the gospel plan or the plan of salvation or even, as we say recently, the covenant path, and you leave Jesus out of that equation, you are beginning to talk about a set of rules, a set of things to do, but nothing will ever really change until the power of Jesus comes into that equation. And I mean the direct power of Christ. It only needs to be a little bit, but it changes everything. So Alma goes back with that centered in his mind, and Amulek is feeling it, and they come back, and they talk about the experiences we have as members of a church, and how, when the power of Jesus comes into that church, the experiences are different. We're not just getting together and talking about all of the things we should do. We are talking about the power of the Lord, the power of the priesthood, the gifts of the Spirit that come into the church when we invite Jesus to be at the table. Here's Alma's description of what it's like to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ. Alma 9, starting in verse 20. After having been such a highly favored people of the Lord, having been favored above every other nation, kindred, tongue, or people, having had all things made known unto them according to their desires, their faith, and prayers of that which has been, which is, and which is to come, having been visited by the Spirit of God, having conversed with angels, and having been spoken unto by the voice of the Lord, having the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation, and also many gifts, the gift of speaking with tongues, and the gift of preaching, and the gift of the Holy Ghost, and the gift of translation and having been delivered of God out of the land of Jerusalem by the hand of the Lord, having been saved from famine and sickness and all manner of diseases of every kind, and they having waxed strong in battle that they might not be destroyed, having been brought out of bondage time after time, and having been kept and preserved until now, and they have been prospered until they are rich in all manner of things. This is his description of the people of Nephi, he said. Having had so much light and so much knowledge given unto them of the Lord their God. I'm quoting in those verses starting in 18 and ending in verse 22 to give you a feeling and to like, to liken your, help you to liken yourself under the people of Nephi who had been sort of lifted up out of their situation, placed in the gospel and church of Jesus Christ and given all manner of blessings. I've been doing a little informal survey recently among friends and relatives, asking them just right off the bat, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about how being 
a member of the Church of Jesus Christ has blessed your life. Not just knowing the gospel, not just having the scriptures, but being a member, a participating member of the Church of Jesus Christ. Here are one or two of the answers that I received. Of course, one person spoke of the ordinances, of the power of the ordinances, and how at this time, particularly being separated from the ordinances by our physical quarantine, has made such a difference. This man said, I miss the temple. I miss being able to go into the temple and have those ordinances repeated to me through my experience as a physical person not just thinking about them spiritually. Another young man said to me, when I read about the blessings that have come through being members of the Church of Jesus Christ to the Nephites and compare it to my blessings, the first thing that comes to my mind, he said, is how I've really not always been worthy of the blessings I have received, but I've sort of continued limping along in the church, as it were, trying to go to church, trying to do those things that are right, and feeling that I make the same mistakes over and over again. He said, and yet in comparison to my behavior, I'm overwhelmed by the blessings that have been poured poured out upon my life. Not only the peace and the love that I have felt coming from the Spirit, but actual blessings. Things have gone well for me. I've prospered in the land. Even when I have felt that I myself am not that impressive as a member of the church. Another woman said to me, who is more in those middle years of life where you're raising your children, she said, you know, as my husband and I have experienced many setbacks in our financial and physical lives, as well as in our spiritual lives. And we've also experienced some little boom times where things have gone really well. She said, I am so thankful for the church, for grounding me in my testimony of Christ. It doesn't matter if things are going really badly or if things are going really, really well. My service in the church, doing what is asked of me to do, keeps me constantly grounded about what is really important in life. This touched me because it brought back an experience that is kind of a sweet experience in my life, and I'm just going to share it with you and ask you while I do so to have you think about how the experience in the, how your experience in the church has blessed your life. My husband was on the High Council for many years, and one time when his responsibility as a member of the High Council was to oversee the physical setup of the church when large meetings are held, we went to the Saturday evening session of of, uh, state conference, and of course he had had committees there that had set up all the chairs, and the church was clean, and these things were done. It was a big session that night, and the church was filled all the way to the back of the cultural hall. And after the session was over, we were unhungered like Alma, only unlike Amulek, we went to a local restaurant, and we had some dinner about 9 o'clock at night. And as we were eating, Craig said, you know, I'm beginning to worry about the church, what it looks like after that large session. We had left before everybody had left the building. So at almost 10 o'clock at night, we went back over to the stake center, opened the building, and went in to check out the church. And in fact, it was rather messy. Uh, The chairs were a little messed up, and then we got to worry about the restrooms. So at that time of night, we went into the restrooms with some buckets, and we went in and cleaned the restrooms again so that they would be ready for Sunday morning. 
I just had a little moment that still kind of chokes me up when I think about it. My husband's a very no-nonsense businessman, and he's quite a successful businessman, and he looks good in a suit. I wandered into the men's restroom to try to find him, and there he was, down on his knees, in his suit, cleaning the toilets, ready for church the next day. It would never occur to either one of us that it was not our responsibility to get on our knees and clean the toilets because we were raised serving in the church. And we know perfectly well that if President Nelson or any of the apostles were in any building where a church meeting was about to be held, they would not hesitate to get on their knees and clean the toilets to make sure that that meeting was properly held the next day. And it suddenly just came over me in a great wash of gratitude how thankful I was to be raised in a church that teaches us that not one of us is above getting on our knees to clean the toilet so that the church meeting might be held in the church, or getting on our knees to help clean a floor, or picking up a sick child, or helping with a sick neighbor. We are taught that those little acts of service are the most important parts of our calling, for as Jesus said, inasmuch as you do it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. Now, that is often said in churches, but in our church, it's a lived principle. It's the way the church is organized. And I had this feeling of gratitude and a feeling of commitment at that moment that as long as I live, I hope to always accept whatever responsibility is given to me in the church because I know it will keep me grounded in the testimony of Jesus because that's the way he chose to live his life. And that's the way his power comes into the church, not by great manifestations from above, although occasionally we get those. The way that the power of Jesus comes into the church is by the humble service of one person to another. Amulek bringing Alma into his home and feeding him is as important as the great preaching that follows. And it, in fact, is that little quarter teaspoon of yeast that gives power to the great teaching that follows. Without that life of Jesus' love and that quiet service of one person to another, the flour and the water and the salt will never make bread. I'll tell you the secret of why the bread was so great and why it rises with only that little bit of yeast. You mix up these four ingredients. You put the little quarter teaspoon of yeast in there, and instead of all of the things that you normally do to make bread, you just set it aside and put some plastic wrap over it and leave it for 18 to 24 hours. And when you come back after that long, long time, which in the life of bread is a really long time, because usually if you're making things rise, you've got a little window of time, about an hour to two hours, when it doubles in size. And then if you don't get to it and do something with it, it sort of starts to deflate. Well, in this case, time is the secret. That little bit of life in the bread After 18 or 24 hours, you try it. And when you come back, there'll be, it will have risen in size, but instead of the big double um, sort of doughy ball that you normally have, there's little bubbles all over the top. There's life through all that bread. And it's what makes that nice crusty exterior and the nice chewy interior. If they have any show notes in the Cedar Fort podcast, I'll give you the recipe. And if not, you can always come to me at MarilynGreenFaulkner.com and I will give you the recipe for this bread. Now, 
Alma and Amulek are teaching us an important point about the gospel in these beautiful chapters, and that is this. Jesus is the life of the bread. There is one thing that is more important than they all, as he says, and that is that Christ shall come down to redeem his people. When Brother Ridges, last week in our gospel study, said how much he loved the, the verses in Alma 7, 11 and 12. He spoke to my heart because those are my favorite verses in the Book of Mormon. Alma 7, 11 and 12. And it is those verses which teach us why, without the power of Christ, anything we do in the church does not have life. It says, And he shall go forth, this is Jesus, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people, and he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people, and he will take upon him their infirmities. That simply means every single thing that's wrong with you. That his bowels, meaning down in your gut where you feel guilt and sorrow, may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Now the Spirit knoweth all things. Nevertheless, the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might take upon him the sins of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. And now behold, that is the testimony which is in me. And I'd like to say that it's also the testimony that is within me. As we read the Book of Mormon, the reason why the fullness of the gospel is contained there is because the yeast is there. The bread of life is there. There is more information about the atonement of Christ and more opportunity to feel his spirit than in almost any other place we can go except the beautiful narratives that actually recount the experiences of his life in the gospels. Those are the two pearls of great price that we find and that we can use to bring life and joy even into times of sorrow. The Spirit knoweth all things, they tell us. In other words, we can study this all day long. But Christ experiences this in the flesh in order that he can turn and give us that joy and succor us in our times of sorrow. It is my testimony that as we take the passages of the Book of Mormon, and especially those passages that teach us of Jesus, and ask him as we read, how does this apply to me today? How can I communicate this joy to my children? How can I communicate it to the people I love? How can your countenance, how can your light shine in my countenance, as Alma explained in Alma chapter 5, that we can have his image in our countenances? How can I make this happen, Jesus? Can you help me know? As we ask that question as we read, we'll get answers about our daily dilemmas that will help us bring the joy of Jesus and his gospel into every part of our lives. And I leave you this witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us on Come Follow Me with David Ridges. Special thanks to our guest teacher today, Marilyn Faulkner. You can find Marilyn Faulkner's books and more Come Follow Me teaching helps at cedarfort.com. Use code RIDGES25 to receive 25% off of your entire order.